All right, Two Cities Church, good morning. Whether you're in here or you're watching online or you are in the lobby, welcome. Now, we say here that every Sunday or every Saturday and Sunday, because we now have weekend services, every weekend is a big weekend at Two Cities, right? The people are gathered, the word is preached, we sing songs, we celebrate. But I would also say that this weekend is special for two reasons. Uh, One, this weekend is special because it was one year ago this weekend that we reopened our buildings, regathered the people, relaunched all of our ministries. We didn't know who would come back. We didn't know what the year would hold. Uh, But I just want to honor God and say it has been an incredible year that we have had. We've seen growth, yeah, and health. So it's been one year. I just think it's good to remember those things. But there's a way, and you know this, there's a way more significant thing that we are remembering this weekend. Yesterday was 9-11. Yesterday marked 20 years since the Twin Towers fell. And I don't know where each of you were when that happened, okay? Some of you are so young, you don't remember it. Others of you, it was, like me, it was a significant day. I was 16 years old, I was a brand new believer. I was in TV productions class. I'd I'd been in the Lord for about five months. I was a brand new believer. And I remember seeing the second plane hit, and I remember the chaos. I was in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. I remember the chaos in my school. I remember the fear, but what I remember right after that was the church being the church. I, I was a brand new believer and I saw, well, Christians were praying for other people. And Christians were being light where there was darkness. Because what happened on 9-11, I mean, it's hard to, you, you ask the question, what happened 20 years ago yesterday? And that's, that's a long answer. But one of the answers is we became aware of evil in a new way in our country. We became aware that we have enemies. We became aware that we were at war. And here's what I would say from a Christian perspective, what really became highlighted in our lives was that sin and suffering are real. That's really what we're remembering yesterday, the effects of sin and suffering. And you ever wonder, why does does the church, not just Two City Church, why do we talk about having a local, national, global mission? Let me just connect it to our lives. Because sin and suffering is everywhere. Just, I mean, you probably, all of you, I'm assuming, know this, but in the last week and a half in our city, there's been a lot of suffering at a local level. Last two weeks, we've had a school shooting in one of our public high schools. We've had a suicide in another one of our public high schools. I was at the funeral yesterday. It was heartbreaking. It was crushing. And I'm like, this is why the church exists. We're the church. This is where we shine. This is where we bear burdens. This is where we pray for people. This is where we talk about heaven and it matters. This is where we talk about resurrection and it matters. You know what's going on nationally, right? There's always a disaster somewhere in the United States. Right now it's New Orleans. We don't know where it'll be next. Guess what? The church is gonna be there. There's stuff going on in Afghanistan. Did you know that 52 Afghan families just landed in the triad this week? Guess who was the first people to meet in there? Churches, Christians. And so what we wanna do is we we wanna just take a moment today. I got to kind of in a sober, somber way to begin with. But we just wanna pray locally, nationally, and globally for the people who are suffering in our nation and that the church, that you, that me, that us, that we would be the church locally, nationally, globally. Let's pray. Lord, we remember today, 20 years ago, where we thank you for all of the heroic people. We think of the firefighters, the first responders, the policemen, the medical professionals. Many of us have heard stories of how they sacrificed their life. Lord, we think about all of the suffering that's happened in our city. We love Winston-Salem. We love our city. And we're heartbroken that so many high schoolers are confused and anxious and depressed and hopeless and scared and wondering what's going on, Lord. I pray that we would be the church, that we would minister to families, Lord. What we say to people in the midst of suffering is God suffered. 
God has a son and his son suffered. And the great message of Christianity is that Jesus Christ suffered for us and he promises that he's suffering with us. That's our hope. The hope that we can tell people is that out of the greatest evil and suffering possible, the death of the Son of God, the greatest good in the entire world came, the salvation of sinners. So Lord, help us, Two Cities Church, and help all of the churches in our city and in our nation and in the world to bring the hope and the help and the healing of Jesus in the midst of so much sin and so much suffering. We ask this in your name. Amen. Well, you can type to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. We're going to cover chapter 5 and part of chapter 6. I'm going to meet you there in a few minutes, but we got so much going on. i got to tell you a couple other things real quick that are going on in the life of our church. First, our weekender. Okay, we've got our weekender. If you, if you go, what is our weekender? Well, as our church has grown larger, the number one way that our church continues to feel smaller is the weekender. Uh, you, if, you're, if you're new, if you're watching online, and, and let me just speak to you directly if you're watching online. Um, this happens all the time. People watch online. And the first thing that they do to come back in person, to get connected to real people, uh, is they come to the weekender. So feel free to come to the weekender. It's this Friday, this Saturday, September 17th and 18th. And it's our on-ramp into discipleship. And I know some of you, you don't sign up for anything until like the last minute. Because you want to make sure, is there anything else cool going on this weekend? There isn't. Okay, we want to see you at the weekender. We'd love to have you there. Secondly, our fifth anniversary, okay? Now, it's kind of like that, that'll be this coming weekend we're going to be celebrating. So a week from today, we're going to be celebrating our fifth anniversary. Now, kind of like in marriage, you know, every anniversary matters, but there's like, there's your fifth and there's your 10th, there's your 15th and all that. Why is the fifth anniversary a big deal? Let me just tell you this, because you may not know this. Most churches that start and plant don't make it to five years. Uh, and, and most churches uh, die between year three and year five. And why is that? It's because the external funding goes away. Churches that help plant other churches, they say, we'll help you for three to five years, usually three to four years. And so the fact that we are a self-sustaining, flourishing church is because of your generosity. Thank you. You don't want to miss. We're going we're gonna to do a big celebration this coming Sunday. We're going to show you a video of the, that's going to tell the story of the last five years of our church. And we're just going to thank God publicly for all that he's done. You don't want to miss that. Finally, members gathering. Okay, I know not all of you are members, if it, but we have a members gathering in eight days. We have a members gathering Monday, uh, September 20th. And if you go, am I a member of this church? No. <laughs> if you're asking that question, the answer is probably no. You're probably not. You would know if you're a member. And you're actually going to get an email tomorrow morning from uh, our church and a video from me explaining everything about the members meeting. But you don't want to miss it. If you're a member, this is going to be the most significant members meeting in the history of our church. We're going to unpack everything about our building pictures, stories. It's going to be significant, very special. So you don't want to miss it. Okay. I know there was a lot of announcements. First Corinthians chapter five. Um, if you're new, this is what we do. We're walking through books of the Bible and well, Paul, Paul, here's what we're listening to. We're listening to a guy named Pastor Paul. He's an apostle. We'll call him Pastor Paul. Pastor Paul goes into cities and he plants churches and he pastors them. And then he helps them deal with the pains and problems of their church. And so we did that. I won't, I won't kind of go over all the pains and problems. But in, in chapter 5, verse 1, I want you to just see this. We're going to be in chapter 5 and verse, in chapter 6 today. In chapter 5, verse 1, Paul says this. He's writing to a church. He goes this. It's actually reported. In other words, this is literally what he means. I cannot believe what I'm about to tell you. I am shocked. I am surprised. We might say, you've got to be kidding me. I can't believe this. It's actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you. And I'll get into the rest of that verse in a second. But basically what he's saying is, guys, I cannot believe that you guys are engaging in sexual immorality. Some of you go, what is sexual immorality? All sex or any sex outside 
of heterosexual marriage. One man, one woman, one lifetime, any and all sex outside of heterosexual marriage is sinful. Paul goes, I am shocked that you guys are engaging in this kind of behavior. Now, we're gonna see this in a moment. Guess what? They're not shocked. And so here's a question that we have to ask. How, and I want you to think about this. How does sin become normalized in our lives? How, how does it go to where, we're gonna see in a moment, we've got a guy sleeping with his stepmom and people think it's cool. Right? How do we live in a society where everyone's like, it's, it's okay, the hookup, shack up, breakup culture is great. Me living with my boyfriend or my fiance and cohabitating is fine. Looking at porn is fine. Netflix and chilling is fine. Fornicating is fine. Friends with benefit is fine. How did we get here? And by the way, Paul's specifically speaking to the church, go, guys, what's wrong with you? Well, sin gets normalized many ways. Sometimes sin gets normalized by the words that we use. So let me just tell you how this happens in our country. When a man cheated on his wife with another woman, we used to call that adultery. That's what it was called for a long time. Well, because that's a biblical category. That's one of the 10 commandments. Okay, there was a lot of things with that. And then what happened to it? What, what do we call it now? Well, what, it was called for a while an affair. Well, that's nice. That's a, what's an affair? Well, it's very soft. It's not, nothing like adultery, is it? Now it's not, they don't call it an affair anymore. They call it extramarital sex. And then now what they're saying is in all of the academic literature, it's now they don't even like to use that phrase anymore because that's kind of offensive. So now they call it non-marital sex. Hugh Hefner, not a Christian, okay, um, who started Playboy magazine. Hugh Hefner, he was crafty. The serpent is also crafty in, in Genesis 3. He was crafty in that he had to ask the question, how do I normalize sexuality? How do I normalize deviant sexual behavior? How do I normalize pornography? And what he learned, and this is well documented, what he learned with Playboy magazine is that if he made the magazine seem sophisticated, so that if he put interesting interviews and insightful articles in it, it would become kind of an elite status symbol and it would normalize sexuality. So the joke, you know, back in the day was, oh, I read Playboy for the articles. I read Playboy for the, the, the amazing interviews that they do. It was the normalization of sexuality. Now, Paul, I want you to see what he's gonna say here. Look, look at me at verse one. He says, I, he's like, I, guys, I am shocked. I cannot believe you're putting up with this. And then here's what he says next. Uh, he goes like this. It's actually reported that there's sexual immorality among you and a kind that is not even tolerated among the pagans. Here's what he means. They don't even do this in Asheville. <laughs> right? Guys, the people on Trade Street don't even engage in this kind of behavior. He says this, it's not even tolerated among the pagans for a man has his father's wife. So he's gonna go, guys, listen, here, and here's the big idea for today. He's gonna talk about how do we, as a church, and, and you, most of you have probably never heard a sermon about this. We're gonna be talking about how, as a church, do we deal with sin? Especially sin that gets public, sin that is repeated, sin that is ongoing, sin in which people will not repent of. That's what he's dealing with. And he's saying, how do, how do we as a church deal with that? And here's the big idea from the text today I want you to understand. Here's what Paul's trying to say. The cross of Christ, which is what Paul's all about. Jesus Christ dying, rising from the dead, the, the, his substitution in our place for our sins. Here's the big idea. Paul wants you to know, here's what, here's what the cross did. The cross does not make sin safe. It makes sin forgivable. 
I just want to say that again. If you hear one thing today, if you're like, I've got to leave early, Kyle talks fast, I don't understand everything he says, then I want you to understand one thing. The cross does not make sin safe. It makes sin forgivable. Here's what, the cross makes sin confessible. I can tell people that I'm a sinner because I know where to put it. I know Christ will forgive me. So that's really good news. The cross makes sin confessible. The cross makes sin forgivable. I can go to heaven and not hell because of what God has done through Christ for me. It makes, it makes the cross makes sin cleansable. I can, I can have a new life. I can have a new marriage with the same spouse. I, I, I can be changed and transformed. I can say no to sin and yes to Christ, but here's what I want you to understand. The cross does not make sin safe. Sin is never safe. Get it, please get it. Sin is not safe even if you're a Christian. Some of you go, well, is sin safe if no one knows about it? No. <laughs> is sin safe if I feel like I'm managing it fairly well in my life right now and it only pops its ugly head up about like once a month? No. Is sin safe if it only affects me? Paul would say, ha ha, an impossibility. Because everywhere you go, you take you. Right? And so what happens is the person who looks at pornography, it affects the way, unfortunately, they interact with everybody of the opposite sex all the time. We all know that who you are outside of work affects who you are at work. We all know that who you are in private affects who you are in public. We all know that sin can be forgiven, but there still can be consequences, right? So if you say something terribly hateful to your spouse, and it's sinful and it's wrong, and you're like, I shouldn't have said that, and then she forgives you, or he forgives you, you go, oh, thank goodness. Okay, so sin is forgiven, but might she still be hurt? Might your relationship still be unsettled for a while? That's right, because we get it. Sin is forgivable, but that doesn't mean sin doesn't have consequences. And so Paul, in verse one, he talks about this strange situation of a guy sleeping with his father's wife. We hope it's the stepmom, right? It's, we hope it's not his own mom, is what I'm trying to say. This is an incestuous relationship. And Paul's like, guys, I can't believe this. He basically, and we know, I mean, you know, we know incest is wrong for many reasons. I mean, here's a little story you may or may not know. Woody Allen married his adopted daughter. Read about it. He, he, and he's never recovered. His reputation has never recovered. He's never talked about it publicly. He's never written about it. And it's all, everybody kind of knows, even the world goes, I don't think that's right. And what Paul says here, I want you to see in verse two, he's gonna to begin to talk about how do we deal with this? He says this, Paul is not afraid to call it the church. He goes like this, and you are arrogant. He's talking to the whole church. He's like, church, you're prideful. He says this, ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. So here's what Paul's saying. This is interesting to notice as well. Paul spends very little time being mad at this man. He's gonna say some things about, about the man, but he does not spend a lot of time talking about the guy. He spends almost all of his time talking to the church and going, guys, yeah, that's wrong. I'm actually more upset with you for not dealing with it. He talks very, very little about this man's sexuality and a lot about the church's pride. And here's another interesting thing. He doesn't talk at all about the woman. Why? Because she's not a Christian. He has different standards because she's not a member of the church. Paul's only talking about how Christians deal with other Christians. Here's why this is important. If your son is in your, under your home or your daughter's under your home and they're disobeying and they're doing a bunch of crazy things, 
God's like, okay, I'm, I'm kind of upset with them and I'll deal with them. What are you doing, mom and dad? Why are you putting up with this? If there's something happening crazy in your community group, it's like, it's like if God knocks on the door, he wants to talk to the community group leader. What's going on? Why are you allowing this? And we're gonna see all of the dangers of it. But in verses three through five, Paul is going to give the clearest explanation we have in the New Testament of what we call church discipline. Some of you have never heard that phrase before. It's not church punishment, okay? It's church discipline. Discipline is always connected to love. There's only two passages in the New Testament that explicitly talk about this idea. And it's what you do with a sin that is public, continual, and unrepentant. The other place, by the way, if you're in a community group and you want to re read about this or just want to study this more, Matthew 18 is the other place. We're in 1 Corinthians 5 today. But I want you to look in verses 3 through 5 what he says. He says this. For though absent in the body, I am present in spirit. And as present, I have already pronounced judgment. Paul's like, this is so clear, I don't have to pray about it. I don't need a meeting about it. We don't need to discuss their feelings. I don't need to hear how it all happened. It's wrong. It needs to be repented of. He says, on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus and my spirit is present with the power of the Lord Jesus, look at this, verse five. You are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. What? so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. It's like, wait a second, Paul, I thought we were just supposed to love everyone. I thought if someone's struggling, I think we just give people a hug if they're in sin. Paul's like, no. And here's one of the questions people have asked. Why hasn't the church dealt with this man's sin? Let me give you four, four reasons that potentially, because these are the reasons we don't deal with sin. We have a wrong view of what grace is. So why hasn't the church dealt with this man's sin? They have a wrong view of what grace is. Well, let, let's just keep letting them go. Isn't God's grace um, cover all of our sin? And, and, and when sin increases, doesn't grace also increase? This is the idea of what we call hyper grace. It's a wrong view of grace. It says that grace only forgives my sin, but grace doesn't actually empower me. It doesn't equip me. It doesn't transform me. See, the Bible says that the grace of God has appeared teaching us to say no. That's the grace of God. So what you often see is you'll see teachers and preachers and pastors and leaders, and they'll teach grace, 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 then they'll have a massive moral failure. I've seen this so many times. It's like, okay, we can't just teach grace, or we can't just teach a one-sided view of grace. Here's a second reason. They may have misunderstood freedom in Christ. What does it mean to be free in Christ, right? We think, the average American thinks to be free is to do what I feel, to do whatever I feel. That's freedom. And in the Bible, freedom is the ability to do the right thing. That's the definition of freedom. The ability to serve people, the ability to worship God. So they maybe had a wrong view of freedom. Maybe they had a wrong view of sexuality. You know, maybe they just thought, that, part of it is that the Corinthian culture was corrupt. Prostitution was legalized. People were confused about sexu sexuality and gender. There was hookup, shackup, breakup culture. People were cohabitating. Does this sound familiar? Yes. So when, when, when a culture gets more confused and corrupt, the church often goes, what's, what's right, what's wrong? But here's the reason that a lot of people think potentially he didn't deal with it, or the church didn't deal with it, that maybe this guy had an elevated status in the church or in the culture. How many churches have not dealt with somebody because he makes a lot of money? 
Oh, we can't talk to them. Why? Because they tithe. Like really tithe. So we can't say anything. Or we can't talk to them. Why? Well, because he's Bob's brother. It's like, who's Bob and who cares? We have to talk about these things. We can't do that. He's a deacon. It's like, look, the commitment is like, look, no one gets a hall pass. <laughs> if there's sin in the camp, it must be addressed. And so Paul is going to unpack how to do this. And if you see in verses three through five, he gives us several things. This is what's called church discipline. This is how you remove a believer from the church. It's really the way the church says, listen, the way that you're living your life, I can no longer say that you are a believer. Now, I can't play ultimately JV Holy Spirit, but, but the way that you're living your life, you don't seem to be a believer. Guys, we've had to do this. It's not fun. The way that church discipline works, it moves, I want you to understand this. The way church discipline works is it moves from informal to formal. And it moves from private to public slowly. Let me say that again. It moves always from informal to formal and from private to public slowly. So if you read Matthew 18, Jesus goes more into detail on this, but the way that most church discipline works, so does our church practice church discipline? Yes, every day. Because most church discipline is just one brother or sister confronting another brother or sister in love about their sin. So you see somebody, you go, hey, man, I don't want to get weird here, but the way that you talk to your wife, I saw it, it was very disrespectful. And I didn't feel like you were loving her as Christ loved the church, and I actually kind of also feel like you're a little tough on your kids. And hopefully, if somebody said that to us, hopefully, if the Holy Spirit's in us, I would hope our response would be, dude, I'm so sorry. Thanks. I, want, I, want to, I repent, I want to work on it. It's like end of church discipline, done. It's very private, it's one-to-one. -one. What ends up happening is if the only way that it moves more and more from informal to formal or private to public is if there is resistance in repentance. And what normally happens in that situation is someone is deeply, deeply trapped in some sin. Then they love sin so much. They can't, they literally can't see things right. You go, well, how can some guy, you know, marry some woman half his age, divorce his wife, marry some woman half his age and leave his three or four beautiful kids? How can it happen? They absolutely fall in love with sin. And on a couple occasions, we've had to sit down with somebody and say to them, and it's super awkward, I don't think you're a Christian anymore. I don't think you ever, actually, my theology would say you never were a Christian. I don't think a believer can live in this type of unrepentant, ongoing sin. And the scary thing is in the situations we've told them, they haven't cared. And they leave. It's one of the problems of the automobile. It's one of the problems of having 500 churches in your city. It's one of the problems of being able to transfer and, and move really easily. Church discipline doesn't work a lot of times because then people just go. We, we basically excommunicated this one guy. We get a call from another church. Hey, he wants to play on our worship team. Do you know who this guy is? I'm like, this guy is an unrepentant, ongoing sin. This is what's wrong. Listen, church discipline is one of three marks of the church. The church only has three true marks. People way smarter than you and I have thought about this for a long time. The church, there's only three things that make a church. You can have way more than this, but you have to have three things. The right preaching of the word of God. It doesn't matter if you do exposition or topical or you do series or you don't do series. You, what makes a church? You gotta preach the word. Well, you might go, well, doesn't a parachurch ministry preach the word? Doesn't Young Life preach the word? That's not a church. Doesn't Campus Crusade preach the word? You're right. That's only one of the marks. The other mark is the ordinances. Baptism and the Lord's Supper. Because why? Baptism is the front door of the church and 
and uh, the Lord's Supper is the family meal. And the ba baptism is the way you enter the church, and uh, the Lord's meal is the way that you show you're a part of the church. But the third is church discipline. Think about it. We've got to rightly preach the word. We've got to, sit, we've got to baptize people that come to faith in Christ and have them part of the communion, and then we deal with sin. Here's what we call this. Here's a big phrase. We call this, and this is a new idea for some of you, regenerate church membership. Here's what we believe, and this is what Christians have always believed. Only believers should be a part of the church. You might go, well, of course, Kyle. Yeah, that, but it's really hard to do. How do we do that? It's like, well, that's why we always sit down and talk to someone before we baptize them. What's the gospel? Who's Jesus? Has your life changed? So we try to talk to other people who know them. Is this person living a life somewhat consistent with the gospel at least? We baptize them. And then we're committed to deal with sin. Now, what is wrong with most churches in America and especially in the Southeast is that we don't deal with sin. We just, we're so, the average church is so desperate for any person to be a part of their church, for any person to be in leadership, for any person to give money, for any person to attend. So they never talk to that arrogant business guy about his shady deals. Well, they, they, oh, we can't talk about it. Why? Because he gives too much money to our church. It's been famously said that when discipline leaves the church, Jesus Christ goes with it. And so we are here committed. Now listen, we're gonna be super confusing to the culture because here's what we're gonna say. We take sin very seriously and we love people very deeply. The hope is always repentance and restoration. Do you see what it says in verse five? It says, deliver this man over to Satan. Here's what this means. There's a special protection. I don't fully know how to explain this. I've thought about this a lot. I've meditated about this this week. I prayed about this this week. Verses four and five seem to say that there's a special protection in being part of a local church. Being a member and a meaningful part of a local church, let me say it this way, you want your kids in a local church. You do not want your kids outside of the protection of a gospel-preaching, Jesus-loving, Bible-believing, missions-minded church. It's going to be outside of godly parents. It's going to be the number one thing God is going to use in the life of your children. And what he's saying is there's a special protection in the church, and he basically says, get this guy out of here. Here's why. Because, and this is what some of you think, and, and this is what you've thought in some dark moments. You've thought, if I didn't, if I wasn't a Christian, if I didn't have to be, if I didn't have to show up to community group, if I, didn't, if I wasn't a part of this church, I would give in to all of my sexual desires or whatever desires, whatever the worst version of you is. And then and you think this, part of you thinks, and then I would be happy if I could just do all the things that my body wanted to do. And what he's saying, and this is really interesting, he said, let this guy go. Give him over to Satan. That's remove him from the protection church. And then it says, let his flesh be destroyed. And basically, it's interesting because you read these commentators and we're not sure what it means. It either means one, flesh can mean two things in scripture. It can mean let his sinful nature be broken. That's one thing it can mean. But most people think it actually is talking about his body. Saying, let him see the effects of sin on his body over time and he'll come back. And I've seen this. You talk to somebody about sexually deviant behavior, they don't listen. They come back years later because they have STDs. You talk to someone about overeating and gluttony and all that, and they don't listen until they're having triple bypass surgery and heart issues. You talk to someone about how much they're drinking and they don't listen until they have cirrhosis of the liver. 
And he's saying sometimes the effects of sin on our body is what God uses. Paul says, I want you to bring this man back. Now, let me tell you some good news. In 2 Corinthians chapter 2, Paul writes to the church, and he basically says he's back. Forgive him. Welcome him. Embrace him. What we see is it worked. You may read this, right? You read and read this and go, oh, gosh, it doesn't seem very loving. It worked. It's what God used to wake this man up and save his soul. It was short-term pain for long-term pleasure. And there's a warning. There's a protection here. I want you to see this. In verses 6 through 9, we're told why this is so important. Look at me at verse 6. Here's what it says. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? So what he's basically saying, he said there's multiple reasons we have to deal with sin. One of the reasons we have to deal with sin is if we don't deal with sin, it spreads. But it spreads like leaven, which means subtly and secretly till it begins to infect and affect everything and you don't know it's happening. Here's what he says. Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump, as you are really unleavened, as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, the gospel motivates all this, has been sacrificed. He's done everything we need so that we can be cleansed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity. In truth, here's what he's saying, and you know this, and I'll try to unpack this a little bit for us. He's saying that your sin doesn't just affect you. And that when we don't deal with sin, it, it ends up spreading. So let's talk about it at the family level. People go, what is, you've all heard of generational sins. That's a very common phrase. There's generational sin. And people go, how does that work? And it's a fair question. How does generational sin work? And like all answers, there's a, lot of, there's a long answer to that. Sometimes it's biological and all that. But part of the reason that you might go, well, why am I struggling with this? Just like my dad struggled with this. It's like, here's why. Because dad never dealt with it. Dad never dealt with his alcohol issue. Now you're dealing with it. I, see, I grew up before the internet. And so I know that 90% of my friends found pornography from their father's hidden stash. It's the number one way before the internet that young men found pornography, and young women for that matter. And what happened there? Is it this weird spiritual thing that gets past generation, or is it dad didn't deal with it? Dad didn't repent of it. Dad didn't starve it. Dad left a place for it. Some of you, you're gonna see your kids grow up and you're gonna be discouraged at a couple things. You're gonna go, why are they so materialistic? I... I why do they have to have the newest and the best and the nicest? Why are they never happy with their standard of living? Why, why, why are they taking on so much debt? And then you look in the mirror and you go, it's me. I've modeled some version of this. I've gotten my kids to be consumeristic and materialistic their whole life. Why, is, why are my sons so obsessed with sports that it's become an idol in our lives? Oh, because I never dealt with the idol of sports. And I created a family, and I created a home, and I created an environment that that's all we do. So one of the lessons is sin is never safe, and deal with sin while it's small. Deal with sin while it's private before it's made public. Deal with your fantasy life now. 
So he says, I want, he says, I need you to remove this man. He says, the leaven spreads. And then I want you to see what he says. Verse nine, he said, I wrote to you. Now, Paul wants to clarify something. He said, I wrote to you in my letter. Not to, by the way, in my letter. This means that 1 Corinthians is actually 2 Corinthians. And it hurt your head for a little minute. Uh, but 1 Corinthians, we don't have the actual first letter he wrote. Paul called it a painful letter. We don't have that letter. Uh, 1 Corinthians is really the second letter he wrote to them. He says, uh, I wrote you in my letter, that would be the first letter he wrote, not to associate with sexually immoral people. Okay. But he said this, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world. Because you might go, well, how do I go to college? How do I have friends? How do I be friends with my neighbors? He says this, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world, or the greedy, or the swindlers, or the idolaters. Since then, you would need to go out of the world. Here's what Paul's saying. Paul's saying the goal of the church and the role of the church, and I want us to understand this, and this will make us confusing to the world in a good way. The goal of the church is to protect the church, not police the world. That's our goal. We, we, we want to just, here's what we want to be. I've been, saying this, I've been saying this for five years. We want to be an attractive alternative. We want to be a city within a city. That's one of the reasons our name is Two Cities Church. We want to do life and sex and marriage and family and finances and parenting differently. We want to be different and we want to be distinct. We want to be a counter culture. And so Paul's like, listen, don't get mad at the world. Every once in a while, it's, 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 this happens, I get mad at the world. He said, but you gotta, when you get mad at the world, you got to say to yourself, they're not Christians. Of course they're going to be sexually immoral. Of course they're going to steal and lie. Of course they're going to be selfish and self-consumed. Of course they're going to watch Netflix all day and waste their lives and be obsessed with their hobbies. They're not Christians. He said, listen, and where the church has failed, again, especially in the Southeast, is what we've done is we've, we've called out the sins that we don't struggle with. We've called out the sins of the culture and we haven't called out the sins of the church. And so Paul just wants to be so clear here. He's like, guys, I'm talking about how the church deals with the church. Let's protect the reputation of Christ and his church. And we actually believe that a pure, godly church is what God's going to use to reach the world. And they're gonna see, guys, what we have to do is we have to do two things if we're gonna have an influence in our city. We have to live a different life and we have to tell a better story. Right? We have to live a life that says, God's changing me and transforming me and I love it. And I do everything differently than you because I live under the authority of Christ and his word. And we have to tell a better story. You didn't come from nowhere. You're not here for no purpose. And you don't die when you disappear. That's not what happens. That's a terrible story. And that's not the story we believe. We tell a better story than that. And so Paul ends chapter five. He says this. He says this, but now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name brother. So there are people who are, these are religiously lost people. They say they follow Jesus, but their life isn't changed. And by the way, all we can ever do is look at a person's conduct. Right? You, you, I, can't, I can't look at you and go, I think you struggle with greed. It's like, why? I don't know, I just think you do. It's like, well, that's not helpful. You can't talk about an attitude. You have to talk about an activity. You can't talk about a motive. You have to talk about conduct. It gets weird. Churches get weird as, I think you love money. I think you struggle with pride. I think you struggle with lust. It's like, well, how do you know? All we can do is look at the conduct of each other's lives. Here's what he says. 
But now I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name brother if he's guilty of sexual morality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. Now that's interesting. What does that mean? Does that mean that if your spouse says that she's a Christian, but you don't think that they are, and they're living in unrepentant sin, do you not eat dinner with them anymore? Do you not eat if your kids, or you got a teenager who says they're a Christian, but they're rebellious, they're not listening to you, do you not eat dinner with them anymore? Here's what people think this means. It's primarily talking about the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper back then was not in the same way the way we do it. A little bit of bread and a little bit of juice as a small part of the service. It was more of a meal that they would celebrate together as the church. These are small churches. And what he's saying is do not let somebody who's living in unrepentant sin do something that is the opposite of who they are. They can't, they can't be a part of the body and blood of Christ because they're not a, a Christian. And I've seen churches, by the way, I've seen churches that they'll tell someone, no, it's awkward. But what he's saying, and also here's what it means. It means something like this. If there's, a, if there's somebody who says they're a Christian and they're living in ongoing, unrepentant sin, don't let them think it's okay. You may sit down and have a meal with them to tell them it's not. What you're trying to explain to them is the seriousness and the severity of their sin. Here's what he says next, verse 12. For what, uh, what have I to do with judging outsiders? Again, Paul's like, guys, we don't police the world, we protect the church. Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. And then he ends one more time. Purge the evil person from among you. So he ends chapter five basically saying, guys, you're not dealing with some major sin in your congregation that you need to deal with. But we're just gonna look for a few minutes because the beginning of chapter six, he says you've got, a, you've got a problem that's different but connected. You're way too easily offended when somebody sins against you. And you make way too big of a deal out of everything. And so I want you to see this, what he, in chapter six, and it's connected, that's why I wanna take a moment look at this. He talks about how basically these Christians were taking each other to court over goofy, trivial matters. And they were losing their witness. I want you to see this. Look at verse 11, or sorry, verse one of chapter six. When you go, sorry, when one of you has a grievance against another, so you're upset, somebody hurt you, somebody said something they shouldn't have, somebody's gossiping, somebody's lying, I mean, somebody's, something happened. Does he dare go to the law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Verse two, or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? So what was happening here is um, in Corinth, there was lots of court cases. And court cases actually were a form of entertainment. Think Judge Judy, okay? This is what it was, <laughs> really. Like a, and so he's saying what was happening here is people were, were, were Christians were fighting with each other they weren't talking about it in the church. They weren't going to the elders. They weren't going to the leaders. They weren't going to their community group leader. They were going to court. They were, they were basically having the Jerry Springer show. <laughs> they were fighting with each other in public in front of everybody. And he said, it's embarrassing. You're, 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 you're dishonoring the name of Christ. Here's what he says. He says this. Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more than matters pertaining to this life? So if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? I say this to your shame. Can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers? But brother goes to the law against brother, and that before unbelievers. 
I don't, I don't have a lot of time to talk about this today, but, but it's an important concept, so I wanna, I wanna spend a little bit of time. Paul's talking about the difference between sins and crimes. You have to understand this. That in a healthy functioning society, um, every crime is a sin, but not every sin is a crime. In a healthy society, every crime is also a sin, but not every sin is a crime. And they were treating certain sins like they were crimes. My, my, you know, could, could you imagine calling the police? My friend's gossiping about me. The police are not coming, okay? It's a sin. It's not a crime. Now, what does this mean? This makes people ask a lot of questions. So can Christians ever go to court? Well, it's interesting. The Apostle Paul went to court multiple times. The Apostle Paul defended himself in court. The Apostle Paul used his Roman citizenship. The Apostle Paul used legal means. It was a legal mean to appeal to Caesar. So Paul himself, the guy who writes this, went to court and defended himself. What he's talking about is before you go to court, if you ever have to, and that's the last resort, you always try to deal with things in-house first. Now, let me explain a couple things that are important. Um, the, a good way to think about how the church relates to the rest of the world is the church deals with the soul and the government deals with the body. Super important to understand. The church deals with the soul, the government deals with the body. Let me tell you a story that explains why this is important. Several years ago, not in any of one of our churches or any church that we're connected to, but there was a large church in the Northeast where there were some children that were molested. It was a horrible situation. And it was, but in general, the church was a Bible-believing, Jesus-loving, gospel-preaching church. And what the leadership of that church did wrongly, wrongly, is they got all the families together that were involved. The, the one who did the sin and those who were sinned against, he got them all together, and he read them 1 Corinthians 6. And he said, guys, we can't go to court. Guys, what this will do to the name of Christ, what this will do to our church. So here's what I need you to do. I need you to forgive him. And I need you to confess this. And somehow, I don't know how it all worked. I don't have all the details. I don't want all the details. But somehow he convinced these pastors, and they're not bad men, but they convinced these, these people to not go to court. Well, this guy ends up doing it again or something else happens, or they find out later that there were more kids involved. It was all of that, it was a mess. And what they realized, they didn't understand that their job was to deal with the soul. You do need to, be for, you do need to repent. You do need to confess. You do need to forgive. And we need to call the police. So if you're not familiar with what's happening in a lot of churches and in a lot of nonprofits and a lot of nominations, there's all of these things with abuse that are going on, unfortunately. And under the guise of, we don't need to tell anyone, we just need to forgive each other, we don't want to dishonor the name of Christ, we just want to let you guys know here, the way that we're going to handle things is we're going to be very, very serious about the soul. And we're also going to talk to the police about the body if necessary. And so that's, that's the way that it's meant to be. And so what Paul's saying is, guys, you've got to, you've got to go. Now, look what he says in verse 5. He says, here's how most problems, so, so we're not talking, so I, I got serious there about Abuse and sexual things that need, will, the church deals with the soul and then talks to the government or the police about the body, okay? Um, but with basic things, here's what, and I want us to get this. Paul's saying with 99% of things that Christians are going to have conflict with with one another, they can deal with if they have an older godly person that will help them. Look at verse five. Well, sorry, verse four first. So if you have such cases, so you're mad at your husband, you feel like your friend wronged you, Someone's gossiping about you in the church. 
Someone, someone owes you a couple hundred bucks and hasn't paid you. I mean, it could be a lot of different things. He says, so if you have any, such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? I say this to your shame. And then here it is. Can it be that there's no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between brothers? In other words, don't you know like one godly guy and one godly gal in our church? Let me just encourage you that most things can be handled if you are meaningfully connected to our church, if you are in a community group, if you're in a DNA group, if you're on a serving team, if you're connected to our church, most of your problems and your pains and your pressures, if dealt with early and often, can be handled with the help of one or two other people. I want to, I want to tell you that to encourage you. In fact, let me just give you, with a little bit of time we have left, the fourfold process you deal with it. You say, when somebody sins against you, you go, can I overlook this? And that's hard, because when you overlook something, you have to admit this to yourself. I'm kind of a petty person. I'm the person who's too easily offended. That's me. I'm the person who makes a big deal of things that aren't a big deal. I've kind of always done that. I hate that about myself. I'm overly sensitive in it. I don't like it, but that's who I am. So you overlook it. Sometimes you just have to forgive somebody. You don't need to tell them. You don't need to walk up to them. I forgive you. <laughs> I've had someone do that to me before. I forgive you. I was mad at you for three years awkward for both of us. <laughs> um, so you, you forgive somebody. Forgiveness takes one person, right? Or there's reconciliation. Reconciliation takes two people. So if you go, I can't overlook it. I, I can't just forgive it. I need to be reconciled. We try to be reconciled and, and we can't agree to disagree or whatever. We can't, we can't. Then you need mediation. That's when one other person gets invested and involved. Why is Paul telling us all this? Let me just close with this. Because he's saying this. Look at verse 7. He says this. To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? This is powerful. This is, uh, you have to apply this to your own life. I can't tell you when to apply this. Here's what Paul's saying. Wouldn't you rather be wrong than lose your witness? Someone owes you 500 bucks? Let it go. Trust Jesus to make up the difference. Someone did something to you, said something they shouldn't have said. They're not going to forgive. They're not going to confess it. They're not going to... Let it go. Don't make a big deal of it. Wouldn't you rather be wrong than lose your witness? That's what Paul's saying. He says, why not rather be defrauded? But you yourselves wrong and defraud even your own brothers. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? If they're not Christians, God's going to handle it. And if they're Christians, God already handled it at the cross. He says this, do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor the idolaters, nor the adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor the drunkards, nor the revilers, nor the swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Verse 11, here's the encouragement, and such were some of you. Here's what's like, well, why is Paul writing all this? I think this is what Paul's getting to at the very end of chapter six, or this part of chapter six. Guys, when you don't deal with sin rightly, when you're too easily offended at what people do to you, when you don't deal with massive sin that shows up in your church, you get off mission. You forget the whole purpose of all this, that Jesus is saving and changing people. Look what he says. And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. Here's what he's saying, and I want you to know this if you're new watching online, if you're here for the first time, if you're a seeker, skeptic, Christianity is about God saving and changing people. Christians are not good people, we are forgiven people. 
Good people don't go to heaven, forgiven people do. Christians are not perfect. We're people for whom Christ died. And what he's saying is Jesus actually transforms and changes our life. As we saw in chapter five, he's our Passover lamb. See, what's interesting about this whole story and what's, what's a new idea for most Americans is that somehow we're all connected, right? So the average American believes in the autonomous individual self who you will approve. That, I mean, that's the American view of self. I am an individual, I am autonomous, and you will approve and celebrate everything that I do. It's like the Christian view is, dude, we're all connected. We're individually responsible, we're all connected, and what you do affects your family, and what you do affects our church. I mean, it's, it's written into the gospel. What Adam did negatively affected all of us, if you know the story of the Bible. And you may go, it doesn't seem fair. How can a guy a long time ago eat a piece of fruit, disobey God, and now I get a sinful nature? Now I'm condemned? You may go, it doesn't seem fair. Well, the good news of the gospel is it works the other way as well. The good news of the gospel is that Paul, the apostle Paul, calls Jesus Christ in some of his writings, the second Adam. Because Jesus Christ lives a life that we cannot live, the perfect life. He dies on the cross for us. He rises from the dead in victory over Satan, sin, and death. And you may go, how does that matter for me? Because when I trust in him, somehow, in the same way that I was in Adam, I was in Christ. That the great, the great truth of being connected to other people works out in our salvation. The way that we are saved is when we transfer trust from ourselves to Christ. We give Jesus our sin and we give him ourself. And what the cross tells us is that sin is forgivable, but sin is never safe. Now, sinners who repent are safe in Christ. Sinners who repent are safe at the cross, but sin is never safe. So listen, deal with it now. Is there a sin in your life that is small, but you have not dealt with it? You have allowed your fantasy life to go on. It's time to repent. Are there people in your life for whom you need to say something? You need to say something to your kids. You need to say something to your friends. We need to be the church. We need to realize that your, your spiritual life is my business if you're part of this church. And my spiritual life is your business. And God has given us the church to take care of each other. It takes a church to raise a Christian. Let's pray. Lord, I pray right now for our church. Lord, it's an interesting message. It's an interesting text. Lord, I pray that you would just help us to realize that sin is not safe, but it is forgivable. Lord, I pray that nobody who comes to two cities would ever feel safe in their sin. But they would feel safe as a sinner as they run to Christ. Lord, I pray that we would be a church that would live in the tension of taking sin very seriously and loving people very deeply and always talking about the grace of God in all of it. Lord, I pray that people would see the foolishness of their sin. Lord, I pray that we would see people come to repentance and faith, just like this man who had to be kicked out of the church. But we find out, I think less than a year later, he ends up coming to faith in Christ coming back into the church and they welcome and love them. What a picture of the gospel, Lord. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.